0: You know, in our walk with the Lord, one of the most difficult things that we uh, have to grasp when it comes to this journey we have with Christ is that it is just very, very different than everything that we've known in the world. And sometimes it's opposite of the things in which way the world operates. It has different values, even opposite values. And the more we walk with Christ, the more we see that, the more we understand that, the more we know that. But there are still those occasions, we're always encountering situations where, again, we're exposed to, we're opened up, that we still have a tendency to make the kingdom of God fit into a worldly paradigm. Losing your life in Christ is the only way you what? You find it. Getting what you selfishly desire only leads to heartaches and brokenness in people's lives. In other words, we think what the world is telling us to do is going to bring about this wonderful life, and it just absolutely deceives us. People take things or they drink things in order to make their problems go away. What does it do to their problems? It makes them greater, more pronounced in their life. And as we've been walking through Romans 9, 10, and 11 these past eight weeks, uh, the common theme is God's mercy. God's mercy on the nation of Israel, God's mercy on the Gentiles, and God's mercy that will again come to the nation of Israel. His mercy being poured out for all. And maybe this whole idea, when you think about it, this whole idea of mercy may be one of those kingdom of God things these kingdom of God theologies or beliefs or understandings in a lot of ways is the most opposite of the way the world operates. Let me ask you, how much mercy is there out there in the culture today where they just let people off? Do we really understand it in the church? Do we we get up in the morning and live from this understanding of mercy? Because if we do, it changes the way we interact with people. It changes the things that we value. It changes the way we work on the job. It, understanding what God has lavishly done for us, in spite of us, changes everything. And the whole purpose of this lengthy explanation that Paul's been going through on God's mercy in these three chapters, is to get us to where we never forget what he's done for us and to give mercy that front row view in our mind's eyes so that when we get to Romans 12, he starts off with, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, therefore, I urge you in view of what? God's mercy. And then chapter 12 begins to tell us and unpack how we live out the mercy of God in our life. It's important. Let me read a few verses there from Romans 11, starting with verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that, you will not be un, that, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, the promise to Abraham way back there is still good. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown Mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, that they also now may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience. So that he may show mercy to all. It really is a remarkable plan of God. As I've studied these three chapters, I've just, uh, I've just been amazed at... Uh, Well, can I say this? I've just been amazed at how smart God is. How smart this whole plan is. He has this historical covenant with Abraham. He's going to make this mighty nation out of Abraham, the Jewish people. They're going to be God's people. He delivered them over and over. He forgave their rebellion. He promised their deliverance through this Messiah. And then Jesus came as the Messiah. And yet, what did Israel do with Jesus? They rejected him. They crucified him. But there's this plan of God at work. There's this, it was necessary so that the mercy of God, the gospel of Christ, would spread outside of Jewish circles. This was not, Jesus was not just coming to reform Judaism. And so the rejection of the Jews allowed the gospel then to be expressed out into the Gentile world. It opened the door for the gospel to be far more than a Jewish movement. It was for everyone. And many Gentiles, well, they knew they were in need. They knew how dark their life was. They knew how pagan, how sinful, how need of mercy they were. And so the grace of Jesus, this, this Son of God who came and died on the cross and rose from the dead, this is not just for the Jews. He's a Jew. He chose all of His disciples were Jews. You mean it's not just for them? I get in on this? And the gospel spread like wildfire through the Gentile world. I mean, think of it this way. Let's say you have this bag, and in this bag it contains all of your wealth. It represents all of your wealth, and uh, you're used to it. You're comfortable with it. You know what's in there. You know how to operate within it. And one day, here comes somebody with a different bag and says, Hey, I'll trade you. Would you do that? You can't look in the bag. You're kind of explained a little bit about what it is. But this person wants to trade you. And you go, Well, I'm really comfortable with my bag of law and rules. <laughs> Your bag of grace looks different. And once you start talking about it, it sounds too different for me. I'm more comfortable with this bag of law over here. And so, what was happening was the Jewish rejection of this exchange for the law for grace resulted in grace now, this bag being taken to somebody else. And say, here, would you have this bag? And guess what? This person over here, they didn't have a bag at all. They were impoverished. Now, let's say you don't have any. Would you take a bag of offered to you that's offered in wealth and say, here, this will supply what you need? See, the Gentiles, they knew that they needed this redemption, this deliverance, this salvation. The Jews, they, on the other hand, they felt like, I can't give up all that I've ever known, all that I've ever wanted. And so because of that, there was this expansion of the kingdom of God into the Gentile world. You think about the Jews. We've talked about this over the last several weeks, but you think about the Jews who are used to the law and they get this idea of grace and You just got to think, how difficult would that be? I mean, I have all these I have this pattern in my life and they've told me how to be good and what I ought to do and what I ought not to do. And if I just live by that, I'm okay. And now I'm, I'm this grace comes and it's like, okay, I can be set free from that. It's not about rule keeping. It's about having a relationship. It's about letting Christ just come into my life and I'm set free. Well, you can't just set people free, can you? You can't just let them go off nilly willy doing what they want, can you? I mean, people gotta earn it, right? And what if they do something wrong? Well, what do what do they need if they do something wrong? They need to be punished. If you don't punish somebody for doing something wrong, what are they gonna do? And do it again. See, it just doesn't sound right. And that's one of my first points here is that mercy is just not fair. You you understand that? Mercy is not fair, right? And that's not an opinion. That's That's a definition. If mercy were fair, it wouldn't be mercy. If you earned it, it wouldn't be mercy because mercy is the guilty receiving pardon, none of their own accord. So mercy isn't fair. It sees the transgressor and just pours out. Forgiveness. And in verse 25, we understand that Paul is talking to a Gentile audience. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. He says in verse 20, I don't want you to be conceited, Gentiles. He says there's this partial temporary hardening of the Jews so that you could be exposed to the gospel of Christ and the grace of God. But it's not like God's changed his mind and rejected the Jews and now he's taken you on and you're better than them and your choice makes you more God's favorite than them. Let's talk about this just for a minute. What happens when Christians think that they're God's favorite? What happens when this church or that church thinks that they're God's favorite church? Have we, in our culture, in history, have we seen denominations think that one denomination is more God's favorite than the other denomination? And the way this church worships is really the way God prefers to worship. I don't know why you don't. Sometimes churches grow and they grow fast and they get proud over their success. And they say, see, God is blessing our church. Why isn't he blessing your church? Because we've decided what blessing looks like And not only that, does uh, what happens when we think we're God's favorite? What kind of message do we extend out into the world around us? You know, we're God's favorite. Why don't you come and be like us? And what does the world around us say? I don't think I would like to do that. Because the implication is we're better. You're not. Come join us so you can be better like us. And that's why Paul is warning the Gentiles here, don't don't think wise in your own estimation. Don't be conceited. Don't think that you've got this, that it's anything about you. And you know, there's one way in which you can make sure that you never get to that place. One surefire way that you'll never get to the place where you think you're God's favorite, that what you believe is better than everybody else, and what you do is better than everybody else, and you're more spiritual, and they're not... The one way that you can keep from ever getting to that place is this next point. Don't ever lose sight of God's mercy. Don't ever lose sight of what He's done for you. He has spared you of what you deserve. How could I judge somebody when He has let me off for everything that I've ever done? How could I I feel superior to anybody because of... Anything that's good that comes out of my life is from him. It's his good. And so Paul is saying to his Gentiles, readers, that they're benefactors of the Jewish resistance of grace. And he's also saying, and I want those Jews back. (laughs) They were hardened and there was this expulsion of the gospel into the Gentile world, but now I want that gospel to come back into the Jewish culture. And in the verse 26, he quotes Isaiah, and it's a direct reference to Jesus, that the deliverer will come from Zion, that there is this sin that will be removed from Israel through the person and life of Jesus. And I want you to know something here today. There is not a different path to God for Jews than there is for Gentiles. That Jews are going to come to God through the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. He still is the only way, the only truth, and the only life for Gentiles and Jews alike. There's not a dual covenant at work in these days in which we live. So is God moving in the Jewish people today? Is salvation through Christ Jesus coming into the Jewish community around the world today? Do we see it happening? You know, in Israel, Christianity is, um, is growing It's hard to get good statistics, but uh, Christianity is still culturally frowned upon. But many surveys estimate the Christian population is growing. and In May of 2011, this is now five years old, the Baptist Press reported, now there are estimated 150 Jewish messianic congregations around Israel meeting in different languages. The number of believers is estimated to be around 20,000 growing exponentially from 1948 when 12 Jews who believed in Jesus could be counted. In 1987, there were 3,000 Christians. And in 1997, there were 5,000. So in the last 19 years, the number of Jews in Israel believing in Jesus has quadrupled the point is, God's mercy is reaching Jewish people today. And there is an exponential rise. Now, that's still a very small portion of those who reside in the state of Israel. In America, amongst the Jewish community, which is the second largest Jewish community in the world, there's far more Messianic Jews believing today. Christ is drawing his people into life with him. Verse 32 says that God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. We are all undeserving, Jew and Gentile alike. We were all dead in our sins. We were all walking in the way of the world, taught us to walk. We all lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging its desires. We were all by nature children of the wrath of God. Every single one of us, Jew and Gentile alike. And that's Ephesians 2. And Ephesians two four starts with these two wonderful words. But God, in other words, he saw how hopeless our situation was and he turns the phrase and he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's his gift to us. And when you when you really grasp the lavish gift of mercy for you. It changes everything. It, 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 it slays you. It brings you to your knees. It just lays you out. It, God would do that for me. And all I can do, all I can do back is just worship. Worship. And no doubt, as Paul is coming to the end of this discussion through 9, 10, 11, he's coming to the end of this. I'm sure he's just caught up in the moment. He's just, he just so amazed at not only the plan of God, but God's personal mercy for him. And he's caught up in this exhilaration of God, and he concludes this passage with just worship. Look at it, verse 33. And Paul has led us on this journey through the gospel of Jesus all the way from Romans 1 now through 11. He's been like this mountain climber and he's reached the pinnacle. He's reached the peak, the summit. And he looks back over the vista of God's mercy and his grace and all the beauty of it. And all he can do is just worship, praise, adoration. And I hope you can sense the heart of the worshiper Paul here. True worship acknowledges His wonder. It acknowledges how majestic He is and how little we really actually understand. <laughs> I can't fully know the mind of God. I can't fully grasp the depth of His riches or the basis for His judgments. I really can't offer Him counsel or help. How many of you have ever offered God counsel or help? <laughs> You see the understanding of his mercy of what he's done. How could I offer him counsel? How could my prayers be about what I want him to do as if I had the idea he doesn't? How can I offer anything of value to him because he needs nothing? Everything has come from him. Everything is through him and everything is back to him. Every bit of glory that ever has been or ever will be is His. And this closing paragraph helps us understand that the response to mercy can only be worship. The response to mercy can only be worship. Let me ask you, have you ever been so overcome by how good He is to you that all you could do is worship? There's nothing you could offer Him. There's nothing... There's no words that you could say. There's no amount of money. There's nothing that you all you could do is worship him. I think back over the milestones of my life, those significant encounters with God. I remember when I was 14 on the Thursday night of youth camp when God forgave my sin. I remember when I was 19 at a camp where he just supernaturally released me from this disease of pride in my life. There have been times in my life where God has comforted me when I was in sorrow, and He's healed me when I was in pain. God has walked with me through the valley of the shadow of death, and He has spoke His will to me so many times, and He's blessed me in so many unusual ways. My God has provided for my family when I couldn't. My God has disciplined me. He's taught me. There are so many moments. Where I've become so aware. Of how deeply. He loves me. His mercy. Undeserved. And yet poured out. Over and over. And all I can do is. Worship my only response. It's the only adequate response. I'm unable to pay him back. Because I have nothing he lacks. (laughs) All I do is worship. You know, worship is. Worship is like a thermometer in your life. It reflects what's spiritually happening in your life. If you could care less about worship, your spiritual dryness, because worship is the only response to the deep touch of God spiritually in your life, there's no other response. You just. A thermometer reflects the temperature. It doesn't set it. It reflects it. It just tells you what's going on. And worship is like that with our journey with Jesus. The more you seek him, the more you find him, and, and He, the more he overwhelms you with his love for you, the more you get to a place where you just fall to your knees and just embrace him for who he is in praise and adoration. Understand this. Understand this. Worship is not a thermostat. You don't feel spiritually dry and then try to crank it up. And turn up. Churches do that a lot. There's spiritual dryness in a church. And so they tweak with worship to try to create spiritual life. It just doesn't work. How do I know that it doesn't work? I've tried it. I've tried it. It just doesn't work. Worship is the reflection of the spiritual activity, not only in a person's life, but in a church's life. You can't tweak with worship and say, if we just sing different songs, oh, the spiritual life will come alive. If we can just get a better preacher, it's all going to come alive. Sorry. (laughs) It's not a thermostat, it's a thermometer. It reflects the spiritual vitality, the spiritual closeness awareness of the mercy, the grace, the love of God. It's not so much a catalyst for change, it's a response, a reflection of the change that God is doing in our lives. And so I want you to be honest with yourself and with God this morning, and I want you to answer this question to yourself. What does God's mercy mean to me right now? When I think of mercy, is it something I would like to sit down and talk with somebody and understand the, 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 the Greek implications and theologically parse the verbs? And I just love to get into all of this about. Is that what it means to you? What is God's mercy for you? What he's done for you? Do you realize what he's done for you? I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Um. And I want you to ask, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different. But as we close this service, I want you to take a few moments and reflect. I know many of your journeys. I I know many of the situations that you've walked through in your life. And uh, I know my own journey. I I, I want you to think back through your life at the times where God has had mercy on you. It may be a situation where he healed you. He healed maybe something physically or emotionally or a relationship. or He just rescued you. He pulled you out of a situation that was harmful. Or. Think of the times where he's just provided for you when you didn't know where you're, how you were going to make it. He's just... Provided for you. Think about the sorrows that you've had in your life. The losses that you've had in your life. And how he has brought such beauty out of those losses. And done things in the midst of the pain in your life. Think of the things that he's forgiven you for. (laughs) How he's loved you. There may be those times where you've wandered from him. And he's just been waiting for you. And when you came back, he just received you back and there was no condemnation. And. There was just these open arms of mercy. Because that's just the way he is. And as we reflect on that, I just want us to in your own way, would you just talk to him? Would you just worship him? Yeah, there's gratitude, but. It's also worship and praise. Just give him glory, would you? And you may be here today and you admit that you've not been walking with God. Maybe you've never walked with God and you're thinking about those things deeply right now. And you've been trying to make your life work out on your own terms. And you just have to admit there's emptiness and there's something missing. And there may be even things that are broken in your life. I want you to know today that there's nothing you're going through. There's nothing you've done that the closeness of Christ Jesus cannot heal. He takes sinfulness. He takes brokenness. He forgives. He makes you whole. Jesus is not an idea that we talk about. He's not a belief system. He's not a behavior improvement plan. Jesus is a very real being. It loves you. And he's been waiting for you and he wants you to talk to him and he wants you to understand his mercy. And You may not get all of that, what it all means, but I want you to know that you can just tell him that you can say these words. You can say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want your love in my life. And I today am choosing to believe that you are real. I choose to believe that you did come to earth. You did die on a cross for me. I choose today to believe that you rose from the dead to give me your life. I choose today to trust you, to believe in you with my life. And you know what he'll do? Poor pour mercy on you. That's just the way he is. And Father, I pray today that uh, as we have journeyed through our history and we see how you have poured out time and again, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our selfishness and In spite of our sin, you have had this enduring mercy that you lavish over and over upon us. And this the heart of this passage has been that you want all to come to know you. You have provided for all to come to a faith, a saving faith, to understand our own personal destinies, our own personal purpose in this world. Father, I pray today for the person that is here today that. Is taking that step of faith with you today and saying, I want Jesus in my life. I want to know this transformation that comes from the inside out. I want to know what it means to be forgiven. I want to know that I don't have to earn it. I don't deserve it. It's just given. I want that in my life. I've had bad information. I've had the, I've thought it was something different. And father, for Christians here today that have grown complacent or apathetic or distant from the awareness and understanding of how much you've done for them. Oh, I pray that they would see in their mind's eye. The cross of Christ. The price that is paid. And I pray that they would not see it at the end of a church service, but they would see it later today, that they would see it when they get up tomorrow. That they would be constantly aware of what the cross has done on their behalf.